So I had a little bit of a case of, in your 20s, um, badassery. (laughs) Welcome to episode 16 of You're a Financial Planner, Now What? I'm your host, Hannah Moore, certified financial planner and owner of Guiding Wealth Management. For today's episode, I interviewed a friend I first met way back when I did my internship, and I've been following her career path ever since. One of the things I most admire about her is her resilience and determination in her professional career. I'm excited she gets to share her story with you today. Well, today we have Katie Brewer with us. Uh, Welcome, Katie. Hi, Hannah. Glad to be on. Great. Well, thank you for joining us. What can you give the listeners just kind of a who are you? Where are you at now? Just a brief kind of overview. I'm sorry. I can't disclose that information. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to do that. Um, so I own my own firm. Um, I'm a fee-only financial planner. I'm part of the XY Planning Network, um, one of the first members in the XY Planning Network. And the name of my firm is Your Richest Life. Um, I work mainly with you know, couples and women in their 30s and 40s. Um, I really love working with that demographic. So I'm in my I'm in my 30s. So I get to work with people actually around my age, um, and they need help with a lot of different things. You know, some of them are buying houses. Some of them feel like they're leaking money somewhere. Um, you know, they they're trying to plan for retirement, but they're also trying to juggle all of these other goals. And so that's kind of what I do now. Great. So how long have you been in the financial planning field? Yeah. So I got into financial planning or financial advising or financial sales or whatever you want to call it. And back in 2004. Uh, So I've been kind of doing this for for 12 years now. So how did you get into financial planning? Yeah. um, I was actually a bachelor of science in biology major back in college and I always laugh that if I had picked a major to really never use ever again, I probably could have picked a little bit of an easier major than biology because it was it was not really an easy major. <laughs> um, but, you know, back at that time, I thought I wanted to maybe go to medical school or maybe wanted to go into um, optometry school or thought that I maybe wanted to do something health-related, but I never really knew why. Like, I, I just kind of figured they make good money and they're well-respected. And um, I'm kind of glad that I figured all of that out before I, you know, dropped another couple hundred thousand dollars to go to med school to discover that I probably wouldn't have liked that job. (laughs) Um, So I took a financial planning class back at A&M my senior year. Just, I didn't know what I was, you know, missing out on. I felt really hopeless (laughs) and kind of very scared about my finances I didn't really feel like my parents had set me up all that well. Love you, Mom and Dad. Um, (laughs) So I took it just for my own um, elective and to be able to kind of educate myself. And um, I just loved it so much that I was like, I I don't know how I could ever put my foot in the door over here because I'm graduating in six months and I am not switching my major at this point in time. But at that point, I knew that I really wanted to be able to you know, kind of play around with numbers and do all the analysis part, but also be able to help people. So once you graduated with your biology degree, how did you move, how did you transition that into financial planning? Yeah. So actually my very first job out of college was doing auditing 
at a hospital. So it had really nothing to do with biology, really didn't have anything to do with financial planning either. It was more of a, it was a business and a numbers type of deal. So we would go in and essentially look at the books and see who had overpaid. Very not exciting. Um, but I did that until I could figure out how to get into financial advising or financial planning. Um, so I applied to a whole bunch of different places. A lot of them that wanted somebody that was entry level wanted someone who had a finance degree or who had an MBA already. Um, so I kind of narrowed it down to two places. Um, it was you know American Express Financial Advisors at that time, now Ameriprise, and Edward Jones. Um, and between the two of them, Edward Jones was offering, you know, more kind of in my neighborhood and the ability to um, have a little bit more flexibility. So I took that job, um, which was really interesting because it was a whole lot of kind of wandering around. Um, I, I laughed that I wandered around neighborhoods pandering for rollovers. Um, <laughs> not very much analysis because you can't really do the analysis until you actually have clients first. So at the point where you took this Edward Jones job, I mean, did you have a good feel of what was out there? Or, I mean, what was kind of your exposure to the financial planning industry at that point? Yeah, I didn't really know anybody in financial planning. Um, both of my parents have worked for the state of Texas their entire career. And so they don't know anybody really in finance either. Um, so this was just kind of, you know... I knew that I just had to get my foot in the door somewhere and get some sort of experience. I didn't really have any, you know, knowledge of what was out there. I didn't have a finance degree and I didn't really have any contacts. So I kind of figured I had to just bite the bullet and get some experience. And then I could use that experience to try and figure out more what I wanted to do. What was it like working at Edward Jones? Um, it was interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do tell people that I think that their training program is really good. Um, I mean, they trained me through the Series 7, but then beyond that, we got you know quite a bit of education on even the building blocks of investments, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, how those are different from ETFs, um, UITs. You know, a lot of things that I feel like that education has really helped me um, in my career since then. And then the sales part of it, you know, I don't know if that was good or bad. It was kind of baptism by fire. Um, so I learned that there are some things that I'm really, really uncomfortable with, but that I can survive through, um, such as wandering around neighborhoods in the Texas heat, knocking on people's doors and asking them um, if they have any money that they need managed. I can't even imagine doing that. That's so crazy to me. <laughs> yeah. I always joke that my mom was like, hey, did we just pay for a college education for you to do this? <laughs> and I was like, hey, this is how you get in the industry. <laughs> I'm not going to be doing this forever. Oh, that's great. So, okay, so you're at Edward How long were you there for? So I was there for a little bit less than two years. Um, they have kind of a graduating scale where they need you to essentially be bringing in more and more commission. Um and I got really uncomfortable with it at some point because, you know, there was no quick turnaround on generating a commission unless you took existing clients and switched them into a different product. And I just morally did not want to be doing that, nor did I have enough in my pipeline to have new money coming in. So at some point, um, I kind of fizzled out 
of the <laughs> of, of what they thought should be coming in and the methods that I knew that I would have to take to be able to show those numbers. Had you built out a network at this point? I mean, were you kind of getting a better feel for the financial planning as a whole? Actually, no, because at that particular um business, they really don't want you to talk to anybody outside of that company. So like every event that we had was just for our company. So regional events were just for our company. Any CE events were just for our company. Retreats were for just for our company. So I still didn't know anybody that worked outside of that company besides people that had left and gone to an independent broker dealer. Um, so I, I really had not yet I did not even know that the Financial Planning Association or any other association existed at that point. What did you do next? Um, So I went to go work at a different um, broker-dealer. It was Lincoln Financial Advisors. Um, They were more into doing holistic financial planning, which I really was attracted to. Um, So, you know, they still did the products, so they still did mutual funds, ETFs, UITs, et cetera, still do the insurance, but they kind of, you know, their training and their methods of prospecting was much more about getting people to do a financial plan, walking them through everything, doing the education, and then implementing the products. Um, So I really liked that approach a, a lot more, and that's kind of what attracted me to go there. How long were you there for? That was actually about a year. It was the same deal. Like you had to start from scratch with no clients and generate them. And it, I'm 12 years into this, and I can still say that I'm probably one of the worst salespeople that I know. <laughs> so I'm not really sure I've gotten all that much better. I just at this point know that if you get in front of enough people and you do enough education and you're confident enough that sales will naturally progress. Um, I still probably can never take somebody, you know, that has never heard of financial planning and convince them to do financial planning. Yeah. Oh my, even just as you're talking, I'm just like, my goodness, three years of kind of being in that, throwing you in the deep end. I mean, that's, that's pretty intense. Yeah. But the good thing is that looking back, you know, I'm like, Hey, if I have to do a little bit of stuff that I'm uncomfortable with now, like I survived that long doing a lot of stuff that I was uncomfortable with. You can do anything now. I can do anything now. I've got I've got my Wonder Woman cape on now. Oh, that's great. Okay, so you finish up with Lincoln, the financial group or the financial advisors. Where do you what's your next stopping point? Yeah. Um just so that we don't take two hours like talking about all the different places I've been, I'll I'll fast track it. I went with an insurance company, and it was the shortest job that I probably ever had um, in my life, including ones where I was, like, making pizza when I was 16 years old. Uh, So I was only there for probably a month until I realized that that was not at all a good fit for me. Um, So I went on to work at a firm called Quest Capital Management, which is a wealth management firm in Dallas. Um, They tend to work with high net worth individuals. So some of them working, some of them retired um, as an associate planner on a team there. And what, how did you get that job? I mean, I know a lot of people listening are trying to just kind of find their way. How did, how did you find that opportunity? Um, you know what? At that point, 
whenever I worked at Lincoln, somebody told me to go join the Financial Planning Association. And so I took his advice. I did go join it. And then I attempted to talk to as many people as I could there. Um, and I kind of did some research on, you know, kind of who's who in Dallas among the CFP uh, crowd. Excuse me. And so whenever I wanted to kind of get out of broker-dealer world and into more of financial planning world, I essentially called as many people as I could humanly call and just, you know, asked if they would give me 15 minutes of their time. Um, and I found that financial planners are actually very giving um, of their time and of their mentorship. I had, I mean, I got some people that were just like, I don't know you, no. Um, but then I had a lot of people that were just like, yeah, you know what, why not? Um, call me up at this time. So I talked with quite a few people and kind of told them, you know, what experience I had and what I was looking for. And I knew that they probably didn't have anything, but there were a lot of people that, you know, were like, hey, well, I think you should talk to this person and this person. And so I kind of made a big spreadsheet of all of the people that I had talked to, what they had said, like if they had recommended that I follow up with other people um, and kind of kept track of it that way. And I believe that somebody referred me over to go talk to Quest um, and they happened to have a position at that time that may or may not even have been posted yet. Um, you know, but I kind of started talking to them and got my foot in the door that way. And it just happened to be at the right time. So I kind of had, you know, three years of experience or probably, yeah, probably about three years of experience at that point. I didn't have my CFP yet, but I was in my CFP classes. So, you know, I could tell them like, hey, I only have two more CFP classes and then I could take the exam and then I would essentially be able to add my credential to um, the credentials here at the firm. So you really built your network by essentially cold calling. Kind of by cold calling, yeah. But you know what? Once you get a couple of people that are willing to help you, you're not cold calling anymore. Then you're just following up on introductions or on, you know, essentially relationships that people have already made with each other. And if one person says, hey, you should go talk to so-and-so, tell them that I sent you, you know, you're not cold calling anymore. You're essentially calling that person up and saying, hey, your friend so-and-so thought that I should meet you. I think that's really encouraging for people because I know when I came to Dallas, I had no network. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just think that's really encouraging. Yeah. And I mean, that wasn't easy and I didn't love doing it. But once again, I made it through those three years of, <laughs> of gut wrenching, um, having to do cold calling. So at that point, I was like, eh, what do I have to lose from this? So in the time that you were working at Edward Jones and Lincoln, what did your client base look like? Yeah, they were actually quite different. Um, at Edward Jones, they're kind of looking for, you know, kind of the um, everyday person might be making, you know, between forty to $200,000 and, um, you know, might need help with opening up an IRA or a Roth IRA or they might have some rollover money. Um, but they kind of did more of a volume business. So, um, you know, I know I took over a couple of clients for another financial planner, and I think there were like 500 clients just in that group of people that I took over um, money for. But it didn't amount to a huge amount. I, that was only like a couple million of assets. Um, so it was a whole lot of small accounts where, you know, Edward Jones may or may not have been their primary person that they go to for stuff. 
that was kind of the the client there. And with Lincoln Financial Advisors, I don't know if it's still the same, but they really uh, focus more on business owners and high net worth individuals, which was totally different. So it was, um, there were actually a lot more no's there (laughs) because if you, if you don't know how to get into that crowd and you don't have anybody to introduce you into that crowd, everybody is trying to cold call business owners and their gatekeepers that you have to get past. So, um, that was actually a little bit harder to get into than the clientele with Edward Jones. And then you go to Quest with more of that high net worth. Right. Client. Yeah. But the thing about Quest was that they already had an established book of business. And so they didn't need me to walk in with zero dollars of assets under management and build it up to $10 million within a year or two. You know, they were kind of more about servicing the existing clients um, and doing the best job possible for them. And then, you know, that kind of organically growing and then getting the, the brand name in front of other people so that you know, other centers of influence and stuff around Dallas knew about Quest. So you're at Quest. I mean, it's a pretty good job. I mean, for, I mean, I'm in Dallas, so I know them. I mean, it's a good job for a financial planner. Mm-hmm. Where were you at? I mean, why, why did you leave or what did you want to go towards? Yeah. So it's funny looking back. I think I had a little bit of that. Um, when you're sometimes a little bit younger, I'm trying to say this so I don't offend anybody that's in their 20s. But for me personally, I think I thought that I was a badass in my 20s. Um, I think looking back, now that I'm in my 30s, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I thought I was such a badass. Maybe I was, you know, 75% of that, but I don't think, I think I thought I was a little bit more than I was. Um, So I think I wasn't patient enough to kind of understand what the um, career path was there. And I kind of looked around and I didn't really see my peers that had been there quite a bit longer than me. I didn't really see them getting moved up. Um, So, you know, I kind of felt like, well, there's not really a a super well-defined path here. Um, But, you know, in hindsight, probably I should have said, hey, what is my path here? But, you know, being a 20-something-year-old that thought I was a total badass, I was like, well, I I can do this here. I could probably do it again for myself Um, or or with somebody else that I used to work with in conjunction. So I had a little bit of a case of, in your 20s, um, badassery (laughs) 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 that caused me to think that I didn't want to, quote, waste time somewhere where I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to move up, you know, along the chain or not. So it was a little bit of communication along with a little bit of probably me not having very much patience um, that kind of prompted me to, to leave. Okay. So if you could go back to the Katie that was working at Quest, like what advice would you have for her? Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think this is a big thing that comes up in the financial planning industry a lot. But um, if you're a younger planner, don't hesitate to speak up, but give a solution. So instead of being like, hey, I don't think that I'm moving up fast enough, um, you know, come up with a proposal. Essentially say, I've been here for two years. This is what I have um, given to the company. You know, in the next two years, this is what I think that I can give to the company. And, you know, 
if I hit this, you know, would you consider whatever, you know, moving me to this position or a pay raise or something like that? Um, and I think I, I really felt afraid to do that back then. But if I were there now, I don't, I don't think I would feel afraid to do that because, you know, I know that they essentially, when I left, had to find somebody else and train that person to come in. And it would have been at least worth, you know, having the conversation to see, you know, kind of what they thought about all of it. On the flip side, um, established firms like your pair planners and associate planners are probably wondering if they're ever going to move up. So uh, you shouldn't wait until they bring it up to actually talk to them about it. You should actually have reviews on your calendar and, and talk not only about what's gone on in the past and what's going on presently, but also what's going to happen down the road in the future. Oh, I think that's such great advice for people and just having those difficult conversations. Right. You left Quest and where did you, where was your next stop? Yeah, I'm going to fast forward a little bit more. I went and worked with a uh, group of financial planners for a while as two financial planners, um, essentially as a contractor. So I was, um, you know, kind of working together with somebody who was a CPA and helping his clients out. So I did that. I just didn't have enough revenue coming in quickly enough to really even cover the bills that I had to pay as doing this on my own. Um, just little things like errors and emission insurance, and we were the broker-dealer, and they had technology fees. And, you know, I didn't really have a plan in place for how to have income in the meantime while trying to build up a book of business. So I learned that lesson, thankfully. Um, and I've owned my company now for two years and going into it, I knew that I was probably going to have to be doing something and balancing that with building my business at the same time so that I could at least pay my business bills and not be going underwater, you know, and and forcing me to go somewhere else and take a salary job. So boohoo. That was, (laughs) (laughs) um, I went after that, I kind of decided I wanted a break. I was, I think I was just like exhausted from trying to kind of find my place doing financial planning. Um, so I did marketing for a couple of years um, at two different places, which was a lot of fun. I was still in the financial industry, but I was kind of doing marketing to help out other financial planners. Um, and then I did some marketing for a UMA company, Unified Managed Account Company, um, So it was a lot different, and it was actually a lot of fun. It was like a nice little break. But at the end of the day, I was like, this is fun, but I still miss working one-on-one with people, you know, and kind of seeing them get that aha moment and helping people to kind of clarify all this jumble that they have sometimes in their head with their finances, um, kind of helping them lay out a plan. So I went back into financial planning. And where did you go to or what? Um, Is that when you started your own firm at that point? Got one more. Okay, one more. I went to work for a a startup company out of New York um, as a financial planner. And they were working with younger professionals, which was something I was really excited about. Um, And they were one of the only firms out there trying to work proactively, trying to work with younger professionals. Um, so I was there uh, from 2012 through 2014. Um, 
and essentially got to work from home, which was great. Got to work with younger people, which is great. Got to be back on a salary, which was exciting. Um, and, you know, it, it seemed like when I started there, they were, I was really, really in line with the vision that they had for the company and, um, you know, kind of what they were trying to do. Um, and right before I left, I, I think it was the vision had changed for what they wanted to do and who they wanted to work with. And it wasn't in line anymore with what I had come there for. So when I left, I didn't really know what I was going to do. That was the first time that that had ever happened, uh, ever. And it was very frightening. Um, and I actually went and worked part-time for a friend for a little bit, just kind of trying to decide if I wanted to do that, if I wanted to continue in financial planning, if, you know, wanted to go back to optometry school, which is what I thought I wanted to do back in college. <laughs> um, and I've, I finally kind of came to the conclusion that, you know, I, I could maybe start a firm. Um, I had been saving money up for it. I kind of redid our entire household cash flow to kind of see if we could live off of one salary. And, um, you know, I kind of just decided, why not? I'll go for it and kind of make this, you know, a three-year experiment and know whether I can make it work. So you decide to start your own firm. So one of the things that I find interesting about you is the demographic that you serve. So you really niche down to that, I mean, from the beginning of your own firm. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I have a few clients that are kind of above and below. Most of my clients are in their 30s and 40s. I have a few clients that are um, older than that, and I have a few clients that are younger than that. But for the most part, I serve Gen X and some of Gen Y or the millennials um, with their financial planning. And I think, that, I think that helps on two levels. It helps with marketing because I can really kind of speak the same language and know what it is that I'm offering. I'm not going to lead with retirement planning to somebody who's 35 years old. Like, that's on their list of stuff that they're worried about, but it's number, like, seven, you know. <laughs> it's below, It's below. like, should we buy this other house or not? Um, we started a will, but we never finished it. Uh, somebody told us we needed to have life insurance. We don't know if what we have through work is enough. You know, where the heck does our money go? We're not really sure. We make good money. You know, and, like, retirement is in there, but it's not, it's not the thing that's going to prompt them to pay a financial planner to do a financial plan. So niching down kind of helps with the marketing, but it also helps with the setup of operations. So most of the time I meet with my clients either through video conferencing, like Google Hangouts or Skype or Zoom um, or over phone calls. And then those that I meet that are here in Dallas, um, you know, I also have clients in Dallas that I'm also meeting with virtually just because they're on the other side of Dallas. Uh, and I do meet with some of them in person through an office that I have through Regis. But, you know, normally a 75-year-old lady would not feel comfortable, like, hooking accounts up to an account aggregation tool, putting documents into a box.com online folder, and then meeting through her computer. Just, you know... Maybe there's 5% out there that do feel comfortable doing that, but there's 95% of people, uh, you know, that are 75-year-old women that just that would not work for them at all. Um, 
but it works really, really well with the people that I work with because they love that I'm kind of helping them to get organized and they're comfortable with the technology and it really helps to work with them on an ongoing basis. Okay. So you start your firm. What was it like starting your own firm? Um, scary. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I always laugh that I have like the entrepreneurial spirit, but I actually have like a very low risk tolerance. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of like I have this entrepreneurial spirit that wants to do something new and fun and amazing. But then I have this like nagging, like, oh, but what if we go broke while I'm doing this? And like, we're wasting money because I could have a salary coming in every month right now. And um, so I had to just kind of swallow, you know, tell the voice in my head that was freaking out because I'm such a kind of safety type person that, um, that, you know, I, I still say I'm two years in and I still say this is a three year experiment on whether I can work with the people that I really want to work with and serve them really well and actually make the money that I want to make doing it. So somebody starting out or who's interested in starting their own firm, I mean, you think there's a three-year runway. Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah. I talked with enough other people that had started their own firm. And honestly, I think this really is affected by two things. A, if you already have clients going in, it's going to be a totally different story. Yeah. I had zero clients going in because I had worked at a couple different places. (laughs) And the last place that I went, you know, I'm, I honor my non-compete agreements and I had signed a non-compete. Um, so, you know, whether it's enforceable or not, I don't really care because when I say I'm going to do something, then I do it. And I had signed a non-compete. So I started off with zero clients. Um, and then I think your sales skill should come into effect as well. So I'm pretty sure if myself and another person that was actually talented at talking people into doing things had started at the same time, they probably would have quite a few more clients than I do. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I've kind of gone through it doing more um, like podcasts and educational seminars and writing and stuff like that. So I've gone about it doing a way of marketing that I felt comfortable with. And that I feel like has kind of established more, um, like deeper relationships. So by the time somebody actually reaches out and says that they want to talk about maybe working with a financial planner, they're probably already 80 to 90% of the way there. They've already listened to me. They've already researched me. They already know that I'm credible. I have my CFP. I know what I'm talking about. And I work with people like them. So the good thing about kind of the long play marketing strategy is that I don't really have to sell nearly as much as if I were just like wandering around networking events being like, you know what you need? You need financial planning. Um, because if I was good at that, then that would bring clients in, but I'm, I'm not good at that. <laughs> <laughs> so for the young advisor listening to this, who maybe somebody wants to go out on their own, I mean, a good way to prepare is possibly going to sales classes or learning kind of that skill set. Yeah, I actually talked to quite a few younger planners who were just like, oh, I hate sales. Like, I never want to do sales. But the thing is, even if you join an existing firm, at some point, if they hand over the reins of the firm to you, guess what you're going to have to be doing? You're going to have to be doing business development and sales. Even if that means that you're getting referrals from existing clients, you still have to convince those people that are getting referred in why your firm is better than any other firm for, you know, 
providing solutions to their problems. So, um, yeah, I think it's actually really helpful to have some sort of sales training, but also to be able to know yourself. So I always encourage people to do like the, um, the strengths finders, which is Clifton, Clifton strengths finders. Um, and to do like a Myers-Briggs, maybe to do Colby. I think the more that you know about where your strengths lie, the more that you're able to actually know, you know, if it makes sense for you to start a firm or <laughs> if it makes sense for you to partner with somebody else or if it makes sense for you to be an associate planner or a portfolio manager or something else. I think that's such good advice. It's so easy to try to emulate somebody else rather than saying, who am I? Right. I know it's much harder to kind of look within yourself, but, you know, really you're going to be the most happy doing what you're good at naturally. You can always teach yourself to, to have better skills in other areas. And I always encourage people to do that. But at the end of the day, like if you're naturally good at something, then you should really be using that ability with whatever it is that you're doing. So you want to make sure you find a good match. Right. So I'll, I'll say again, those three were the Colby. That's one that we really love within financial planning. So that's K-O-L-B-E. Uh, Colby exam, Clifton Strengths Finder. Um, the it's affiliated with the Gallup industry, so that's the one that does all of the polling. Um, but I really like that because it kind of gives you, you know, it, it's all these different like personality traits, and it gives you like your five top personality traits. So it's kind of different. The Colby is more like ability, as in like, are you more analytical? Do you like to build stuff? Strengths Finder is more like, what's your innate personality? Uh, trait that kind of makes you unique um, and that you can use. And then the third one was the Myers-Briggs. So that's more um, like the ENTJ and the, you know, like, are you more extroverted or introverted? Um, you know, and are you kind of more like analytical or, or idealistic? That's great. Thank you for those. I think I, I agree. They're so helpful and helpful in understanding yourself and then other people as well. Yeah, exactly. You serve people in their 30s and 40s, and you've seen the way a number of different firms have serviced clients. How, what, what does your process look like with those clients versus what you've seen other places? Yeah. Um, so I tried to set up a method where I didn't have to turn people away if they don't have free money right now. So I, I feel like with the 30 and 40-year-olds, um, if you can catch them right when they're at a rollover, that's great. But if you can't, I don't really see any reason why you can't work with them right now. So that's part of the reason that I joined the XY Planning Network is because I wanted to be able to kind of figure out all of this retainer stuff <laughs> so that I could actually start working with the people that I wanted to be working with, um, regardless of, you know, if they had just left a job and they had, had money to roll over. So I try to make it less about AUM and more about, you know, essentially what I'll do for them. Um, a lot of the people that I work with have tried to work with a financial advisor before, but that person might have just been selling them products. And at some point, the client kind of figured out that maybe everything wasn't in their best interest. So that also kind of goes into the sales cycle because... You know, if somebody's been 
I don't want to say burned, but if they've had the experience of having someone that didn't have their interests at heart, that kind of helps them get over the hump of having to pay out of their pocket for advice when they haven't really paid before, especially if you can show them essentially the cost of free advice. <laughs> <laughs> so do you charge like an hourly basis or how, how do you, how do people pay you? Yeah. So, um, I'll usually charge people an upfront fee for getting started. And then, um, I have them on a retainer and it's broken out into monthly payments. So they, ha- they pay an upfront fee and then they pay, um, a fee on a monthly basis for ongoing services. Um, I don't like doing straight hourly just because I feel like it's very hard to keep track of when somebody emails you and then you glance at that email and then you think about it for a while and then you call up a couple of different other planners and then you post on an FPA forum and then you finally decide what you're going to tell them and you get back to them. Like, did you keep track of all of that time? Did you keep track of like the time that you decided to walk your dog around the block and you thought over there? specific situation (laughs) and called your friend that was another financial planner to talk over that case. I mean, did, did you sit there with your timer while you were walking your dog and say like, this is time that I'm billing to my client? Cause I don't really want to do that. So, um, that's why I kind of come up with how much is going to be charged. And then I try to track on the back end, how long it's actually taking me to, you know, essentially get through the processes for presenting their financial plan. Um, And if I'm way off, then essentially I will start adjusting my pricing uh, to make sure that it's actually in line with what I'm charging. So how do people respond to the retainer model? Like how do your clients respond to that? Um, Yeah, well, you know, if I explain it as that they're essentially paying for help with stuff that they've never gotten help on before that, you know, they've tried to do themselves and sometimes have succeeded in and sometimes they've made mistakes that we've already talked about in our prospect meeting, Um, you know, and kind of talk to them about the value of having somebody by their side, being their financial advocate and being their financial coach. You know, if I kind of clarify the things that we're going to be doing together Um, then the retainer model is not really even something that we have to have a big discussion about. Um, You know, a lot of times the people that I'm working with may have already worked with um, a financial advisor, a financial planner. And so a lot of times they've actually been sold something that they're not sure that they should have. And sometimes they'll be putting a lot of money into that thing that they're not sure that they should have. You know, so sometimes it's as easy as saying, well, we're going to evaluate blah, 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 but if we could save you this on this, then I've already, you know, essentially made up for what I'm going to charge you. Um, I try to use that as like a last effort <laughs> because I I don't want to like tell people I'm going to make them money and that's why they're paying me. That's not why they're paying us. Um, they don't pay an attorney to make them money. They don't pay a CPA to make them money. They pay those individuals for advice. And so essentially they're paying me as a financial planner for advice to keep them accountable um, and essentially be able to see obstacles before they can see them to be able to help them steer clear of them. 
With these clients, I mean, do you use the traditional e-money or Money Guide Pro software to help them, or what does that look like? Um, I actually tried out e-money and I tried out Money Guide Pro. Um, I found just because working with 30 and 40-something-year-olds, retirement is number seven or eight or so on their list of things that you know we need to figure out or fix or get into place. Um, so Money Guide Pro, even though it's very cool tool and easy to use, it still seemed like it was too retirement heavy. So like, you know, if they're not on track for retirement, it's kind of showing the whole plan is failing. And I found that that freaks people out because they want to, quote, fix it, unquote. But there's no fixing retirement planning if that person hasn't fixed their cash flow issue. Um so what I discovered was I needed more of a cash flow tool uh, than a goals-based tool. So the software that I use is Bright Capital, um, R-I-G-H-T, Bright Capital. Uh, it's actually relatively new to the industry. Um, but I would say you can actually toggle back and forth. So you can either do pure cash flow-based planning. You can do modified cash flow-based planning, which kind of assumes that you have like X dollars per year to use or you can do goals-based planning as you would be doing in Money Guide Pro. So I really, really like that flexibility um, because normally I do it as modified cash flow planning, which means that you know we're not specifying every single dollar that goes out the door because in reality, I don't think clients ever do that, ever, unless they're financial planners or actuaries or engineers. Um, the other 80% <laughs> of clients out there don't know every single penny that goes out the door. But we can at least get down to identifying enough to say, okay, we think we have this much money to put towards this stuff, but what we're going to work on over the next six months is actually making sure that that assumption was accurate, and we're going to do that essentially by you know, switching around the way that you track money, and you're going to report in how much you spent on you know, variable expenses per month. So... Right Capital was the only one that I found that would actually address like really simplistic things that, you know, you would think somebody that makes $200,000 already has in place like an emergency savings fund, um, but you would be shocked how many people are coming with things like, you know, I have a little bit of credit card debt and we had an emergency savings fund, but we ended up having to use it for something else. And so we're kind of starting from scratch, but we put 14% into our retirement plans, you know, that type of deal. Um, and I think Right Capital is really flexible for that. So do you spend a lot of time talking through their budget and kind of that cash flow issue with them? What I do a lot of times is I give them homework. So essentially, I have, um, you know, like an Excel spreadsheet that is part of them getting ready for their data gathering meeting. They're having to fill that in. So what I find a lot of times is that if people haven't been tracking they usually have a pretty good idea on fixed expenses because those are the really easy ones. They're like, yeah, I have a Netflix subscription and like here's a couple others I found on my credit card bill and, you know, we know what our house costs and we know what, you know, our utilities run and stuff like that. Um, where they usually get hung up and where we're usually sometimes throwing darts at a dartboard is that variable spending number. And so if I can continue to kind of give them homework on how to either track that or how to change up their systems to make that a lot less opaque and a lot more clear, 
then um, that helps both them and me because I never want to get in the situation where I'm the budget babysitter. You know, like I, I just don't, I don't think that that's an appropriate place for a financial planner to be because then you're kind of making your client codependent on you. You know, like they're going to be calling you, asking you if they can, you know, buy a birthday present for their kid. And you're like, I don't care. Are you keeping it around an average of 1500 like we talked about? <laughs> so I really like being able to give them like, you know, a clear picture of, of kind of where it's been so that we can actually set a goal that's actually reasonable. And then we track it for a couple of months. And I tell them that like, this is a process where we might figure that that's not a good number at all. Um, so I kind of give them permission to fail a couple of times before we actually identify like what their goal is for what they're going to, you know, try to keep their spending to. So how often are you meeting with your clients? I mean, is it every month? Is it, how does that work? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's more upfront than it is after that. So, um, you know, we'll, and I've been adding meetings in instead of taking them away. <laughs> um, just because I feel like when somebody says I'm ready to go, before what I was doing was sending them a big flurry of emails where I was like, here's the financial planning agreement, here's the link to set up the payment, and here's like the link to start onboarding. And, you know, people would get a little bit overwhelmed and or start getting in procrastination mode and they wouldn't actually like move on anything. So I've now put in an intermediate meeting where it's just like 30 or 45 minutes where I am shooting them all of those emails, but it's while I'm on the phone with them. And so I can be like, click the link, open it up. Okay, let's go through this. Do you have any questions on it? Um, if not, you know, you're going to sign it and get it back to me. <clears throat> so it is funny because I thought, you know, by leveraging technology that I was going to like decrease a bunch on time spent doing things with people. And I found that it does make it like more streamlined and easier to track, but it doesn't necessarily like cut down as much on time because people still need somebody to help them understand what they're doing and why they're doing it, even if they already agreed to do it. <laughs> so I kind of have like a quick 30 to 45 minute um, onboarding meeting. And then I set their data gathering meeting, but I give them a whole bunch of homework in between because by the time we have the data gathering meeting, essentially I want 90% of the information already gathered. Um, for me, I don't know, this might differ from other people, but I kind of walk people through my financial planning data gathering. And a lot of places, I just tell them a number or a specific thing to put in there. And I tell them like, for instance, um, the software says, at what age would you like to retire? Okay, that's a really easy question, and people should be able to answer it quickly, but uh, some people get totally tied up on things like that, where they're just like, wait a second, I thought I was hiring a financial planner to tell me when I could retire. So <laughs> there are just things like that that really all I want them to do is connect up their accounts so that it will pull in, you know, like the underlying investments and some of the transactions. So, you know, I kind of give them a step-by-step, -step, like, just put this in and it's going to be my job as your financial planner to essentially like tell you if you're going to be able to retire at 60 or 65 or 70 or 75. So I don't <laughs> make them or 80, you know, I don't make them be the financial planner. Sometimes with the technology stuff, it gets 
people hung up because sometimes you're asking the client to pretend to be their own financial planner. I essentially tell them what to put in the software and then I have them upload a bunch of documents. And because I'm trained as a financial planner and I've been doing this for 12 years, I know what to look for and I know what to pull out of that to go in and, you know, finagle my financial planning software to get a good output out of it. It's a whole different experience for your clients than what it would have been when you were at Edward Jones or something along those lines. Yeah. I mean, I do tell people up front that I'm probably going to ask them as many or more questions than like their doctor would ask them if they came in with, you know, (laughs) some sort of thing that they wanted a diagnosis on and their doctor's asking them all kinds of unrelated questions. Um, So I always kind of tell people like, you might be coming in and asking me, about the tax ramifications of selling a rental property, but I'm going to be asking you for a paycheck and a tax return and your company benefits and a screenshot of what your 401k is invested in now. And you're going to start wondering like, how in the heck does any of this have to do with my question about selling my rental? And I'm telling you that you're looking at like the little bitty piece of pie and I'm actually looking at the entire pie. So I'm going to make you give me a whole lot of information than you think that you're going to need to give me. But I assure you that I'm looking at all of it and putting together your financial plan. That's great. I like that analogy. I'll let you use it. What? I said, I'll let you use it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Katie. You're welcome. (laughs) So, okay. So somebody listening to this podcast, he's like, that's really cool. Like, I want to figure out how to service my, my demographic, essentially is what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Where would they go or where would they go to learn more about that? Um, well, I mean, I think XY Planning Network is actually a really good resource. And, um, you know, there's there are things that I knew that I wanted to do, but then there are things that I would have gotten hung up on had I not had another group of financial planners to kind of help me through it. So, I mean, there's so much, like, technology out there. There's so many different choices of even like the smallest things, like which, you know, which um, archiving software do I want to use to save my emails (laughs) and and which online client storage is the most safe one? Like things like that can really, if you're trying to do this on your own, like those could derail you and, and essentially distract you from actually going out and talking to anybody about your firm and trying to get clients because you might get totally sucked into the details. So, I mean, I think XY Planning Network is a great resource. Um, I think the Financial Planning Association is a really great resource. I think your local financial planners. So if you can find a mentor or even a couple of people that will, you know, essentially agree to sit down with you for 30 minutes, um, I'll say if you do that, like, make sure you're really targeted and specific about what you want to talk about. Like, don't just show up to lunch and be like, so what can you tell me? You know, like, have questions. Um, And then NAPFA, I'm a part of NAPFA, and they have a lot of good resources, too. Oh, I'm sorry, one more. There's a book that I contributed to um, that's called, I think it's called So You Want to Be a Financial Planner. Is that right? Um, That is a really helpful book. Uh, essentially, they give a bunch of case studies, and they kind of talk about, you know, they go through different models, and they talk to different financial planners. Hey, similar to what you're doing on this podcast, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
so that's a, a good resource and a good book as well. That's great. Is that the, um, there's a book that we base the name of this off that was called, So You Want to Be a Financial Planner. So I bet you it was uh, probably the same resource. It probably is. It's by Nancy Langdon Jones. And it yep. is, So You Want to Be a Financial Planner. Yeah, that's great. So looking back, just over your career and your whole experience, what advice do you have for young planners that are starting out or who are trying to, I guess, find their place, if you would? Yeah. Um, well, so I would say a couple things. Um, don't be the 20-something-year-old uh, Katie who thinks she's a badass and doesn't have to do things that you don't want to do. <laughs> so anything that you're doing, kind of, you know, slow yourself down a little bit and think, what can I learn from this? Or what can I observe? Or, you know, can I raise my hand more and get kind of put into more meetings or be able to take on more responsibilities? Because anything that you do is probably going to help you out someday in the future, um, if you still choose to be with that firm or not. Um, you know, so there are things that, like, you might not want to do but someday, if you started your own firm, you might have to do those things again. And you will be really glad that you learned how to do them somewhere else so that you're not attempting to learn them for the very first time as you're also trying to build a financial planning firm. Um, so that's one. Like, make sure that you network. You know, like, get out to financial planning association meetings. Get out to NAPFA meetings. Like, you know, if you're shy, go find somebody else who's not shy to introduce you around. Um, I feel like the connections that I've made within this industry have been extremely, extremely helpful. And I mean, for nothing else, just having people that I can call up every once in a while and just be like, hey, I'm in a place in my business where I'm a little bit stuck. You know, is there any way that I can, you know, pick your brain? And these are people that know me and I've gotten to know them over the years. And um, so they don't mind, you know, kind of being a resource there. So I would say, Networking and kind of keeping relationships going with other financial planners is really important. That's great. And the consistency over time, because I think it's so easy to get short-sighted views. But, you know, these are, I heard somebody say, these are the people that you're going to grow old with, you know, professionally. Yeah, exactly. So don't be that person that calls everybody up only when you need a job and then you forget to tell any of them that you found a job and then you quit that job and then you call them all up again because you need another job. Please do not be that person. Be the person that like, you know, every once in a while sends like an e-card to somebody or sends an email and says like, thank you so much for your help. I actually ended up getting, you know, this job because of the connection that you sent me. Um, just those are very, very little things, but those are big things as far as building relationships with people. Oh, I think that's great advice. So is there anything else? I mean, any other questions or thoughts that you have as you've kind of walked through your story with us? Um, you know, as a whole, I, I kind of walked through my story. And at one point, I was so frustrated that I wasn't sure that I wanted to be in financial planning anymore. Um, I would say, you know what, this is a wonderful, wonderful industry, um, especially for those of us that like to play around with numbers. I mean, essentially, I get to go play around with numbers all day, and I get to talk to people and help people. And I think those two things are like the most amazing things that I would want out of a job. <laughs> so I really love it. So if you're in a place where you want to be doing financial planning or, 
you know, you're in the industry, but you don't like what you're doing, just make sure that you can kind of see beyond that and, you know, be able to kind of see the other opportunities that are out there. Um, just because there's so many different opportunities and different ways of doing it that I sometimes see people wash out of the industry that I think would have been a great asset and a great resource to help people. But, you know, they just got frustrated with whatever the red tape, or they couldn't quite find the position that they wanted or, you know, whatever. And, um, if you just kind of hang in there and, and either figure out how to make your own path or figure out what the path looks like to get to where you want to be, um, you know, then you essentially can stay in this wonderful industry and uh, help people and get to play with numbers all day. Can't beat that. I, exactly. I'm with you. <laughs> well, and it's, we need young people in the profession. I mean, I think that that is just so clear in all the numbers and all the statistics that you see, like the profession needs you to be successful. Yep. We need young people. We need females and we need some diversity. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody come on out. <laughs> oh gosh, there's a whole nother podcast just in that. <laughs> oh, great. Well, thank you so much, Katie. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me on Hannah. It was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us in this episode of your financial planner. Now what If you want to hear more episodes or to be the first to hear of upcoming events, please go to our website, financialplannerpodcast.com and subscribe to our emails or follow us on Twitter at guiding wealth. We look forward to seeing you next week.